and welcome to the Booster Pack. My name is Rans, and this is the show where we unwrap the stories and crack the mysteries of collectible games each and every episode. And here on the show today, as we've done many times before, we are going to be retracing some card game history. And we're doing that because we are lucky enough to be joined by somebody who is arguably one of the most varied and prolific tabletop game designers to join us yet. However, before we time warp back to the beginning of their near two and a half decade long career, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the more recent titles that they've released because you may recognize some of them. Perhaps you've even played them or even own them. You see, because our guest today is somebody who has released a plethora of card games, board games, dice games, and miniatures games for some of the biggest tabletop gaming companies around. And on top of that, a lot of those games are linked to some of the most recognizable franchises and loved fandoms in the world. You see, even in the last 10 years, our guest has been responsible for creating some of the most critically acclaimed deck building games to hit retail store shelves. Titles like Street Fighter, Lord of the Rings, Power Rangers, Transformers, and of course, celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, the DC Comics deck building game. On top of those fantastic boxed card games, they've also released a number of other tie-in tabletop titles for franchises like Assassin's Creed, Adventure Time, Archer, Rick and Morty, Lock and Key, The Walking Dead, and even NHL. You see, as well, though, we're not going to touch on too much of that today because our guests actually started their career in this show's favorite tabletop gaming genre. You know what it is, collectible games. So to share the stories and adventures of their time in TCGs, we have somebody who judged for Magic the Gathering, promoted for Pokemon, designed for DC, all in the trading card game space. Join me in hailing our guest to the show today. Welcome, Matt Hyra. Matt, how do you do, bud? Hi there. Doing pretty well. Glad to, glad to be here in, in, the, in the brick dungeon where you dwell. That's right. The uh, the basement, the booster pack basement for alliteration's sake, we'll call it. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. And there's so much I have to ask. And obviously we could fill literally three hours with the stuff I just mentioned there. And there was so much that I didn't mention, but I'm so excited to be able to talk about some of the collectible games that you worked on, because that's how you got your career start. But let's not jump forward too far just yet. Um, let's start, you know, with the simple stuff. Let's start with the, you know, the origin of your origin. The secret origin would be appropriate way to put it, considering all the superhero games you've worked on. Tell me about how you actually got interested in hobby gaming to start with. Yeah, well, it pretty much started at uh, age. 10 with uh with D, with other kids on the block you know and uh kids my age maybe a couple of older kids down the street and we started playing DD, but we quickly branched out into other stuff like traveler top secret boot hill dragon quest rune quest so i was kind of surprised looking back like wow how did we afford to buy all these books and whatnot but i guess each person like would take turns buying a book and we would check out new games. So having a good, you know, diversity in my portfolio has, has been a staple since the beginning. That's fantastic. Like, I mean, you mentioned a gamut of various different um, RPGs there, and that's fantastic. I mean, just to have that diversity of different game mechanics and everything like that must be very exciting. You sort of remind myself of me, because I'm very, very enthusiastic about trying every different collectible game that comes out. But uh, but you seem to have done the same with, uh, with uh, RPGs and stuff. Now, 
I just mentioned collectible games. So let's let's dive in a little bit. Like, do you remember the first time you heard about a game in this particular genre, a trading card game? I'm probably assuming it was Magic the Gathering. Do you remember what the first experience you had with that was? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was living in Seattle. I lived there for a long time. Uh, and so that, that, that got me into trading card games pretty quickly. In fact, <clears throat> the very first game of Magic I ever played was July 5th, 1993. How was that even possible? That's before it's released. Indeed, before it's released. So what happened was I was running the gaming, uh, the gaming department at the local, um, at what was called Westercon, a traveling science fiction convention that would go up and down the coast. <clears throat> or I should say the West, West of the Rockies kind of thing. Uh, and I was running gaming there. And this, uh, this, this, this older gentleman, little balding, little chubby comes over on Monday. This, is a, this convention ran Friday to Monday. Uh, I believe it was Origins had run Thursday to Sunday. So Peter Adkison flew home and immediately decided to drive 20 minutes up the freeway to come to this convention with 2000 people right and I was running the gaming there and he showed up kind of early before things had really gotten going uh, it was like 10 a.m but I had opened up the room and he showed up and uh he said hey I want to show off my game here is that can is it okay if I use one of the tables and I'm like yeah sure go ahead so he starts spreading things out and I'm like putting out sign-up sheets and all that and no one's really hanging around so I see the art on the cards and I'm like well this looks pretty interesting. Why don't you uh, Why don't you show me what's going on here? And so uh, we we played. That is an amazing story. So those who don't know their history, like or who who aren't familiar with Magic history, that was and Magic didn't come out for about a month officially earlier. That's in Gen Con, and who you're talking about, Peter Atkinson was the CEO of Wizards of the Coast, literally going from store to store, or in your case, convention to convention, and sort of spruiking this brand new literally genre in the in the tabletop space and that's that's how you heard about it so we talk about day zero adapters but you're literally a day sub-zero adapter that's true um yeah and in fact um by the end of the day i had i had pre-ordered one starter deck to get mailed to me at no cost so i paid my eight dollars and 99 cents for one alpha starter deck you know the the thick pack of whatever it was, 40, 50 cards. <clears throat> and that showed up, um, that showed up on my doorstep uh, like a, like a six weeks later, but actually, or not even that, not even that. It actually showed up like late July. Um, after it, it, when I did that on July 5th, Peter also, because I was so nice or whatever, he invited me to the kickoff, to the magic kickoff party which was at his house down in Renton, Washington. And I think that was around August 1st or something like that, but it was attended by a lot of the artists and the three or four staff people of Wizards of the Coast, right? Um, where people like Peter had all of his stock was just in his basement. There were like a couple hundred alpha uh, booster boxes and I didn't have a ton of money at the time. I was in college. So I was like, well, I, I bought a few extra booster packs, but I was literally trading real cards just for more land. Okay. Now, had I had a couple hundred dollars in my pocket, 
I could have put together an alpha set, a mint alpha set that day because all the artists were buying booster boxes and then just trading one for one to try to complete a set. And so I would guess that 10 or 12 people put together a full set that day. And hopefully they held on to it for 20 years and put their kid through college. So you never know. And college and a car and uh, a couple of flights around the world. And they were, of course, alpha. So worth a little bit less than beta, but we won't get into that right now. <laughs> that is some deep minutiae. Now, speaking of deep minutiae, there is something there that sort of I am curious about. And who knows if this stays in the final cut of the episode because you've just tantalized um, my curiosity. When Peter first showed you the game, if I'm not mistaken, at Gen Con, he had only a very limited supply of cards, just a brick of cards. Did you, do you remember how you played at that time? I don't even believe he had enough land to sort of build full decks at that. Yeah, I remember the starter deck that I got in the mail had a Lord of the Pit and I only had about five swamps. So I was, it was very difficult to play. So uh, yeah, when I went to his house for the kickoff party, I, I had to trade to get some more swamps because I figured, hey, this guy is really big. I should, I should make a deck around this, but. You, you, I really had to just use almost every card in the deck for my from my first play. And there were there were people who had decks with like there was one guy who had a deck with like 14 ancestral recalls in it, you know. Somebody else had a deck with 25 plague rats in it, you know. So people were just kind of goofing off. Yeah. So again, we should mention at that stage in Magic's history, uh, there was no there was no card limit. Essentially, the game was designed to be played with any number of cards that you could collect as well. And it's just fascinating to hear that. And in fact, um, you know, you mentioned that Peter had stock in his basement and stuff like that. And again, part of Magic's history is its first couple of months before it really exploded, and it started really as a West Coast thing before. I mean, yeah, a West Coast thing before it moved across to the East Coast. It was all right out of that basement that you mentioned of Peter's there. So it's absolutely fascinating to, I, I was not expecting to hear about that on today's show, but that's that's great. So obviously you would have followed magic literally from day sub-zero as I dubbed it before, um, all the way through to a sort of its release and stuff like that. Tell me about those first couple of years and, and sort of what your opinion was of magic as it sort of grew and changed from this sort of casual, sort of more tabletop sort of board game centric thing to this more competitive sort of uh, tournament centric sort of game that we sort of know it as today well i was I, I was fascinated by the game early on and just loved that like wow you know this this you know each card does something different and they combo and all this and i i knew i was addicted because there was a, a local convention a different convention a pure gaming convention in at the end of august 1993 called dragonflight and they put a free booster pack into everybody's packet and I stood at the registration table offering to buy those packs for a dollar from anyone who didn't want it. And half the people, eh, more than half, 75% probably had no clue what it was. So I probably bought 15 packs that way, standing there for, for an hour. Um, and there was even a tournament there where I just had to use, you know, all the cards that I just got, but my deck was like three colors, not very good. I think the winning deck was something like, you know, 15 uh, prodigal sorcerers and things like that. So, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, what else? Um, I, at that point, I just wanted cards, right? I, there was no, things weren't worth money until there was another convention, science fiction and gaming, kind of 50-50. Uh, called DreamCon in October. And I went there and there was, the gaming area was full. Like everyone was there playing magic. And 
there were a couple, there was somebody who was looking for an alpha. They were, they, they went around asking everybody, they would pay $80 for an alpha winter orb because that is the only card they didn't have to complete their set. And so I'm like, whoa, okay, this is getting interesting. That's amazing. So obviously at the time, you know, that wasn't market price for winter orb. Obviously it's got a few zeros on the end of it now for an alpha winter orb, but it's it's absolutely amazing to hear that you sort of were part and shared in this, this magic history. You know, Dragonflight, you mentioned that convention there is uh, again, another very famous convention that sort of is tied into magic history. That was the, the convention that Richard told uh, Peter his idea at more or less and stuff like that. So it's absolutely fascinating fascinating to hear that you were sort of lucky enough to be on this ground floor and sort of got in in the earliest day but as I was saying before you know a magic metamorphosized from this game that had anti which was where like you would basically win other people's cards sort of like marbles um and it evolved into something a bit different it started getting you know as we mentioned before the deck limits and card limits and stuff like that and became a more of a competitive scene and I believe uh, you have a bit of a history with competitive magic what drew you towards that more competitive side of things well that that kind of goes back um that goes back a little bit. Um, so because I was such an early adopter, I was one of the only people who had read the rule book and knew how to play. And I had played with people who actually knew how to play, right, at Peter's, at, at Peter's house. So when a local game club wanted to start running tournaments because there was so much demand, I was the judge because I knew the rules better than anybody else. And so I was, I ended up running tournaments, you know, here and there around the city. Wizards didn't have an OP team at the time. They weren't running any events. Eventually they, uh, they took notice of me. Well, I actually, I actually qualified for the pro tournament at a, at a local qualifier and then went to Long Beach. And that's where some of the people from on the wizard staff saw me in 96 and said, "Hey, aren't you guy? Aren't you the guy who runs runs tournaments in Seattle?" I said, "Yes." And they asked me if I wanted to uh, be the head judge of the Wizard of the Coast Tournament Center in Seattle. And I said, "Sure," because I, I wasn't working at the time. Uh, and they said, "You're hired." So that was yeah. But so I kept with it. You know, I kept playing even though I was the judge at the time. I eventually uh, played in a qualifier somewhere else and won it so i was able to get or that's sorry it's been it's been a little while i'll give you i'll forgive you for not remembering exact details i it was before yeah i got the the qualifier was before i got hired and then uh, it was just a local qualifier then i got at the first long beach tournament that's when they hired me but because i i was in the top 32 i got a free invite to the next one so i was actually a contractor because they didn't want a full-time employee playing in the event but I kept getting top 32 and so I kept going and they said well as soon as you don't make top 32 we'll hire you full time so eventually I did not make eventually my luck ran out and uh so then I was a full-time employee and yeah so I got a couple of questions to pull out there first of all did you throw that tournament to get less than top 32 no no actually it was uh dallas the first dallas event i believe in 96 still <clears throat> it was 96 yeah um i just hadn't had any time to practice so i my my deck was tuned to beat like uh stasis lock but everyone else had gone for super fast or greater style 
style play. And so my deck was a little slow against that. So I lost. So it was basically because I just didn't have time to do any testing and I never played in any, any events because I was running them all. So that, that's, that's super interesting. So my, my next question is when you say you're working at the, the Wizards of the Coast Tournament Center, now there was two tournament centers in that era. There was the one that was sort of at the Renton headquarters and then the big one that sort of evolved into the university district. Which one uh, was it? Were you starting at the sort of the headquarters or did you start when the, the sort of big sort of tournament center started? Yeah, it, it's they're, they're linked. Okay, I started out at the Renton Wizards headquarters. That's where the tournament center was. It was very popular. We would get a couple hundred people for, you know, re, you know, qualifying events, things like that. That's when they decided to move it to a retail location up in the university district. So the tournament center in Renton closed down and it restarted up there as a real gaming mecca. But it didn't, it only lasted about a year. It was just, you know, they, they, it, it, it didn't quite work out. So I eventually came the end, uh, I eventually came back uh, to Renton. But at that point it was to work with, but you know, they wanted to keep me around. The tournament center had already been closed down. They didn't want to restart it. So I joined up uh, as customer service uh, doing magic rules, right? Something you were well familiar with at the time. Yeah, so, uh, so I was on the rules team there for a few years, uh, yeah. So let's just jump into that sort of that sliver of a year that sort of like you, you described it as a mecca. And I think a lot of other people sort of see it that way as well. Those who were lucky enough to attend, it was a huge venue that Wizards of the Coast sort of funded where it was a, a part gaming store, part gaming space. It was sort of like basically the biggest sort of interpretable game store that you could imagine. It had uh, Battletech pods. It had uh, its own retail store that stocked all the Wizards games and other companies games. It had a giant head for Hurloon Minotaur. There was all sorts of stuff. And it even hosted, I believe the 97 World Championship. And you were a judge during that time. So tell me what memories do you have of that sort of era? That was sort of like the boom era for sort of like trading card game retail, I guess. Yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a, such a big place. It was kind of a logistical nightmare, which probably led to its demise. Right. Well, it's such a fascinating sort of piece of, of magic history and stuff like that. And one thing that I've really sort of been fascinated by as well is I've heard and this just came up in my research is you might have in, uh, actually impacted as a judge some of everybody in the world's magic game for at least a 20 year period because i've heard that while you were there at that time you sort of developed a technique to sort of start magic games you know at the beginning um there was no sort of rules for sort of resetting uh you know your hand when you draw magic but everybody nowadays who plays sort of trading card games or most people are familiar with what's a mulligan you know and in the early days of magic a mulligan consisted of if you drew your hand and you had either seven lands zero lands or one land you could throw your hand back and read draw but you sort of at least as my understanding came up with an entirely new technique in this particular fashion called the Paris Mulligan do you want to tell me about that and where that idea came from because I feel like what people would think of uh, as far as like a standard trading card game Mulligan is that particular thing so people were I, I noticed that people would get really discouraged by one land hands and it just led to you know a lot of a lot of uh, crying and gnashing of teeth, you know, not literally, but uh, and so I, I just thought, you know what, 
I think people should be able to decide when they want to mulligan and not have to show their hand. And in fact, um, the rule finally uh, was um, was implemented when a when a pro tour player flashed a hand, hiding their only land behind another card, and got caught. And they said, "Okay, I think we need to go with the what we called the Hyra Mulligan." And then it got, and it actually should not have been called the Paris Mulligan. Should have been called the LA Mulligan because that's the first place it was used. But and it was supposed to be. It was supposed to have been only for uh, limited play, not constructed, but they accidentally left the language of the mulligan in the player packet that was sent out for Paris, which was a constructed event. And so they had to go with it. And that was, I think that might've been where Prosperity Bloom came in or something. There was some combo deck that minorly benefited from it. Uh, but not too badly. And so they said, well, hey, that was a pretty good test of it. So it became the rule of the land for uh, quite a while, like you said. Well, just for anybody who's not aware, so that is the the sort of the technique when you draw a card, a hand of cards, and in magic, that's seven, and you look at your hand, and if you don't want to keep it, you can sort of shuffle it back into your deck and draw one less card. So instead of drawing seven cards after that mulligan, you'll draw uh, just six, or then five, and then you can continue that as often as you like. I should have mentioned the original mulligan was only available if you drew all land or no land, okay? That led to issues where people would sometimes draw one land. And sometimes that land isn't, is like some special land that's not even all that useful. Uh, so my mulligan was, hey, you don't have to show your hand to your opponent. You can just declare that, you know what? I don't like these seven cards. I'm gonna reshuffle and draw one one less. And you can do that multiple times. And, you know, usually going down a card is not so bad. Sometimes you'll go down two cards, that's pretty bad. But there were even some tournaments, some pro level tournaments where people mulligan three times and still won. So apparently it was okay. It was definitely something that shaped uh, shaped magic and sort of competitive magic for, for almost 20 years for as long as it lasted. Now, um, just to wrap up sort of your time at, uh, at that sort of game center there, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about magic. Was there other sort of this collectible card games in that era that were played there? Do you have any memories from anything outside of magic that, that happened in that era? Yeah, a little bit. There was some uh, Battletech card game from Wizards of the Coast. Um, I, some Netrunner, a little bit of that. Uh, I don't recall if we had Jihad, uh, which is now Vampire the Eternal Struggle. I don't, I think we tried to do that and it, we may have only had a couple of events, but yeah. Um, but we tried a lot of different formats as well. We played some, some weirdo, some weirdo formats that, uh, you know, just just for grins there as well that's awesome so let's let's take that there because you know you sort of mentioned it before but let's let's sort of break it down a little bit so you jump from you know judging at the the you know the premier flagship store for wizards of the coast and end up moving in-house for for sort of being in customer service and everything like that now how does that sort of lead to game design did you do any game design at wizards of the coast or anything like that while you were sort of there yeah i i was trying to i was trying to get into r d um and i was helping out with mostly non-magic stuff like some i did some play testing for access and allies um i had they had put out a call an internal call sort of for a, a soccer card game and I came up with one of those, um, 
but they even paid me for it, but never published it. That's so interesting. Like uh, most American viewers won't know, but Wizards actually published a soccer card game a couple of years on the football champions game. I think it's called or football showdown or something like that. Yeah, they used somebody else. They they went in a different direction, but you know. Yeah, so that's so interesting. And I also heard, and, and, and by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, at some point you pitched them a Star Wars trading card game or something like that. Wow, where how, where, how did you hear about that? <laughs> that. Um, yeah, a friend of mine and I had come up with a Star Wars trading card game. We tried to, we pitched it to them at Gen Con in about, eh, maybe it was 95 or something like that. And the big issue was they didn't have the Star Wars license at the time. Of course, they would get it later on for Richard Garfield's Star Wars dice base game. And I did do a lot of work on uh, that as well. I even came up with a Gungan expansion, which they sort of used a little bit, I, I think. <laughs> I don't even remember. Uh, but I, I wrote, I, I basically was, uh, I, wrote, I wrote all the strategy articles for it. I did like 40, you know, 40 of those in 40 consecutive weeks, coming up with a new deck every every week, stuff like that, so. So it's really fascinating to hear that, you know, you're pitching the Star Wars game and, and, and if it was in 1995, indeed, um, obviously, uh, Decipher, the, the company that would ultimately end up releasing the Star Wars customizable card game for most of the 90s, the second biggest selling card game, um, would obviously release that. So they tied that license up. And as you mentioned, you know, eventually it went back to uh, Wizards or Hasbro at the time. And Richard released a, a quite personally favorite uh, Star Wars game of mine. My pitch could have even been 94. I, I don't remember. It was before Decipher's game came out for sure. What, do you remember what your game did differently from that one or even differently from Richards? Um, mine was more, it was, it was, it, it had some similarities to Decipher. One thing that we did is um, we had, you could have uh, named characters pilot vehicles and improve them. And so that was a way to so, you know, to, to try to mimic the movies a little bit. That sounds really cool. Like sort of like a reverse equipment. A little bit, yeah. So they were saying, so obviously, you know, you've pitched this game all these years ago and now, you know, eventually you find yourself in-house at Wizards of the Coast. You know, you said you were working on customer service, you know, you were doing various other things. So what else, like what memories do you have from working there? You know, you were working on, uh, you know, you mentioned working on Avalon Hills, Axis and Allies and a bunch of other games as well. Um, like at about that time, if I'm not mistaken, things like Pokemon start to come out and everything like that. So tell me about what memories you have in that chaotic time at Wizards of the Coast. The later, yeah, so I, I got hired on full time, I think in 97 and by 98 or whenever uh, they were showing us this new thing called Pokemon that was popular in Japan. And we're just like, all right, whatever, you know. Um, We'll check it out. And so we ended up publishing it and then the phones never stopped ringing. <laughs> Things got real crazy and the company hired like an extra hundred people just to keep up with all the logistics of the demand. That's amazing. So tell me like at this time you're in customer service, like what, what are the phone calls saying? Where do I get Pokemon cards? Where can I be fun? Yeah. That half of the calls were, where can I, where can I buy it? And the, they were calling cause no one had it in stock. It had all sold out. So yeah, most of the calls 
were not rules questions. They were just how, where can I buy it? So what was your first impression when this brand sort of fell upon Wizards? Because really it was a bit of a pivot for the company. Uh, you know, you guys had gone from these heavy RPG games, that, you know, you sort of grew up with all of a sudden to this zany, you know, Caesar inducing franchise from Japan that you guys had likely not heard of before. What was sort of your, your opinion at the time? Well, my opinion at the time, you know, it, it had interesting, it had interesting ideas, uh, you know, how to do your resources and attaching energy to characters. It was interesting stuff, but I didn't, I, I barely, I played it once in a while, you know, it wasn't really for me. So, uh, you know, I just had to, I just had to know the rules, you know, uh, so I could answer actual rules questions that came around. Uh, but no, I, I didn't. Wizards of the Coast didn't do much in the way of actually designing it. So they just published it, you know, translated it and published it. So so you um sort of are working, you know, like I said, customer service during this boom period for Wizards as, you know, you know, as uh, Hasbro sort of uh, uh, acquires them and sort of takes over and everything like that as well. Um, Do you have any sort of like those ending memories, like anything you want to share about, you know, times or trading card games or anything, game design stuff that you might have done in those sort of like last couple of years? Because uh, before that, you're sort of jumping... Uh, you're jumping to another company very, very soon to work on some some big games. Yeah, I did. Um, I did interview for Magic R and D, um, but uh, uh, I did not get it. <laughs> you know, someone smarter than me probably got it. Uh, but so, and and you know, people they they wanted to keep me around, and they were wanting to get me on other projects and all that. Um, but I, you know, they were dragging their feet a little bit. So that's when I, that's when I got the call from California. Okay. So California is a huge, big jump for your career because that's, um, for many won't know, but Upper Deck Entertainment, which at the time had sort of, uh, very recently sort of incorporated Yu-Gi-Oh into their stable and they were starting to publish that in the West. And as many people will recognize, it's a huge hit over here at that time. Um, so they've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of resources lying around. So they start to think, hey, what happens if we start to publish a trading card game that not only are we, you know, like Wizards is doing with Pokemon, importing from Japan that we sort of own, which turns out to be Verse System, which is, you know, the uh, Ma the Marvel versus DC Universe. We have alluded to it a bunch so far. Um, tell me about how that opportunity comes about and, and you know, what happens when California comes a calling. I literally got the call while I was, you know, <laughs> while I was at work, <laughs> right? to just, you know, hey, I need someone, I need some people to build a pro level card game. It's got Yu-Gi-Oh money behind it. Do you want the job? How soon can you get down here? And, you know, I was a single guy and this was 2003. So I'm just like, let's go for it. You know, I wanna do R&D stuff. So I wanna graduate here. Uh, so I literally quit that day or put in two weeks notice and on a Friday, it was a Friday. So I worked two weeks and the next very next day, the Saturday, I hopped in the car and drove down. I just left my condo unplugged, you know, just just took everything out of the refrigerator and unplugged the refrigerator and left just to just to check it out, you know. So that makes me really curious. When you heard about this project, did the names Marvel and DC and superheroes, were they all part of the mix at that point? Or were you just going down to, you know, create this card game? You didn't know what you were jumping into. Yeah, I think I think we knew it was going to be Marvel because uh, the, the first release was X-Men versus Brotherhood. Um, but the reason why it was such a rush to get 
to get me and a couple people in there was originally the the I, the thought was that verses should be should use almost you know use 90 percent of the Yu-Gi-Oh engine oh interesting that's how it was going to be that's how it was going to happen but Jeff Donay had come down there to kind of run to run the game and the OP for it you know get the OP going for it organized play and uh he was like whoa this is not going to be a pro level game that you guys are looking for you're going to need something that has a little bit uh, a little you know a little 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 bit more robust rules and whatnot so uh that's why he needed people real fast right so and you guys sort of that's sort of fascinating to hear so there was at some time you know spider-man cards that looked like blue eyes white dragons or you know x-men cards that look like dark magicians or something like that uh in your eyes and basically if anybody knows their Yu-Gi-Oh history it's going to be that that game sort of had a bit of a for lack of a better term janky start to its rule set uh and sort of competitive play and it was basically you know best stuff wins for a couple of years and you guys sort of reshaped this sort of concept into what became verse system tell me about you know what it was like sort of shaping this game and stuff like that and what role did you play in all of that yeah um there was only two full-time R&D guys who were kind of working on Yu-Gi-Oh at the time uh it was Mike uh Mike Hummel was basically uh kind of put on versus uh he's now at uh, Blizzard um and <clears throat> and the other guy was just on Yu-Gi-Oh full-time so with, uh, you know, me and Mike kind of just looked at the game and thought, eh, yeah, you know, I think we, we need to get a little bit more tactical here for a pro level game. There needs to be a little bit more to it than flipping a coin, essentially, or who's got the best card, right? So um, that is when we also, so we started coming up with some ideas, but we needed to play test and get everything firmed up real quick. So uh we brought in a bunch of magic pro players for a good i think it was originally supposed to just be two weeks but most of them ended up staying for a month or more you know just to get it right uh people like uh justin gary uh ed fear uh rob doherty darwin castle a few more i'm probably forgetting uh, and we just worked on it day and night. That's amazing. So um, for those interested, obviously, I've spoken to Justin a couple of times on this show. You can go back and check out his side of the, the Verse system story. So when you brought on the team, which was basically your move games from uh, Boston, what uh, like was that something that you had connections through? Like, was that your suggestion, your connections through uh, magic judging or, you know, professional magic or whatever you guys might have been familiar? That was that was Jeff Donay's doing because he had been he had been a a, a big uh, he had been like the first level five judge I believe at Wizards of the Coast I was only a level three he was a level five so he knew everybody he knew everybody they knew him so he could get him out real quick um, and yeah we were you know we were we had you know our direct combat system direct combat systems where you can directly attack characters always has issues uh of of you know uh first player is gonna is it uh the, the the side with the bigger character is gonna be able to crush the side with the smaller character because there was always one turn behind because we had immediate attacking we wanted it to be more superhero hero not sitting back with with summoning sickness right which is again sort of like that Lugio thread as well you know like you can summon and, and and bigger guy sort of 
outmuscles the smaller guy. Yeah, we wanted the action to be a little faster. Um, I had been playing a computer war game called Combat Mission at the time, where both players would actually program their moves at the same time, and then, uh, or one at a time, then send it to the other person who would program their moves, then it would resolve. So I had the idea, well, why don't we have a mutual turn where the uh, where the attacker does the, you know does their summoning and positioning first, then the defender does their summoning and positioning, then the attacker attacks. So I think that was once we got past that point, then it was a lot smoother sailing. So I'll take credit. I'll take credit for that little that little piece of verses right there. That's so interesting. So um, a lot of things sort of deviate from from Yu-Gi-Oh very quickly. You know, obviously you guys mentioned that um, something like resources comes up. You know, obviously we are familiar with Magic's lands very commonly, and inverse system. It sort of takes a a, a nod from not so much Magic, but Wizards' other games sort of around that time, which was Duel Masters, where you can essentially put any card from your hand into the resource row. Do you remember how that sort of idea came about? I don't know. I think that may, I don't know that for sure. I think maybe me and my, Mike Hummel and I had kind of come up with that. It could have been a variety of people. I don't remember that one specifically since it was, you know, over 20 years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Obviously, there's so much, but that ends up becoming sort of like the way that the game is sort of dictated. You know, it talks about, you know, it's one drops, it's two drops, it's three drops, it's four drops. You know, as the game escalates, you get bigger and bigger heroes out and of various different identities and stuff like that. It's a fantastic game. Do you happen to remember, like for Verse System specifically, you know, what was the first thing that obviously you're working on the rule system, but did you have a sort of moment that you're like, oh, this is my first real contribution. This is the first thing I saw that I put in that saw print. Well, it was it was very exciting and things were moving very quickly back then. And this would have been uh, late 2003 into 2004. Um, but I don't have any, I don't have any specific recollection of, I mean, I, I was definitely, I was I was worried about, would we be able to pull this off in such a short amount of time? So. You know, I I was I was curious if 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 my R and D career was gonna was gonna last more than a year, probably at that point. In hindsight, obviously you've done pretty well as far as securing that more than one year sort of uh, tenure. Yeah. So that would be so fascinating. So being on the ground floor, you know, morphing this sort of trading card game beast, for lack of a better term. Um, in from this sort of Yu-Gi-Oh system into what it became where it was this robust sort of very competitive system I it was actually one of my actually Yu-Gi-Oh ironically was my very first competitive card game but I quickly realized the flaws in that system especially in those early couple of sets and I jumped onto uh verse system because I loved how much uh it embraced the flavor of these sort of comic book heroes you know for those who don't know verse system uh, or versus system rather is essentially Marvel versus DC or there was co-current sets for those two brands and you could essentially play any deck amongst them do you remember what it was like you know watching this game finally coming out you know you mentioned how worried you were if you could pull it off you know what are your memories from its first launch what are your memories from its first competitive play because if i'm not mistaken it's a game that launched with well i actually remember trying to compete for it but its own pro circuit to sort of rival magic's pro tour and stuff um, and so pro level play, as you mentioned, was such a priority. How did you feel seeing it launch? Yeah, I was I was I was pretty shocked at how much Yu-Gi-Oh money there was thrown around to uh, make giant sculptures and bring in the Batmobile and invite top magic players to come and play. 
like Kai, you know, Kai Buddha and stuff like that. John Finkel, maybe, I don't know, just Brian Kibler off the top of my head. Brian Kibler. I think he won the first, he won the first uh, pro event. Yeah. And it was some big, you know, and they, they had some big cash prizes as well. So that also, that also was a little scary of like, wow, we're spending a lot of money here. <laughs> you know, hopefully, hopefully my paychecks are clear, you know, but Yu-Gi-Oh was, was gangbusters. So it was not an issue for the first few years. Well, as, as somebody who spent much uh, pocket money and lunch money to the chagrin of my parents on both of those games, uh, it was certainly something that I loved enjoying so much. So I guess... My sort of question is, what is your sort of role in the first couple of years? And when do you sort of, uh, for those who don't know, you were actually designer for one of my personal favorite sets for um, for Verse System, which was the uh, Justice League of America set or the JLA set. But what, like, what do you sort of remember in those first years before that particular set came out? Like, was there sort of changes? I know that Verse System was sort of a game that initially was really popular and then sort of got some criticism for having some weak sort of follow-up sets because they were too balanced like tell tell me about your memories from those first couple of years yeah mike hummel and i did a lot of the work on the original x-men versus brotherhood um but we and i think we probably did it probably the spider-man was collaborative with a few people i don't don't really remember after that we had a different we had different designers on ev almost every set and it does seem that that may have led to some uh, some power level issues because we had some some powerful sets and some weaker sets and yeah that was that did not help the bottom line and it did not help the reputation of the game either so and i think that jla my set probably ended up on the lower end or was deemed lower end of the power scale because i had the i forget what it was the assisting you know the assist I believe you mean ally mechanic? Ally, ally, that's right. Ally mechanic of discarding duplicated cards for bonuses, you know, so maybe maybe did not uh did not satisfy as well as it could have well as somebody who was uh who was attracted to the game because of its ips and its properties uh it was something that i really enjoyed and and as i mentioned it before it was sort of my second game sort of stepping up from Yu-Gi-Oh uh in the sort of real competitive space and it was something that i got slaughtered on uh, i literally uh, would go to many many uh sort of uh as they were called pro circuit qualifiers at the time and play and i was all of 14 15 at the time and uh, uh, and I would try and play my favorite sort of character decks because I'd grown up watching, you know, the Justice League cartoon or, you know, some Spider-Man cartoon or whatever, and absolutely have my uh, my breakfast handed back to me on a plate. But um, my question, I guess, is how do you become the person tagged for, you know, this amazing set? You know, like JLA for me personally was, was a fantastic set. It, you know, it was the first set to even feature uh, two affiliations for a team on a single card. Um, tell me about how you become the guy to sort of shepherd one of the most iconic DC properties, the Justice League, which is basically all superheroes, into the verse system. Well, yeah, I've always been more of a DC guy than Marvel, um, at least for the comics. Um, the the Marvel movies nowadays are arguably a little better. <laughs> so, um, but I really wanted to, I really wanted to keep things thematic to the characters and to the Justice League team and things like that, and not just look for the biggest, baddest, you know, text I can put on a card and biggest numbers I can put on a card. I wanted things to feel a little more like a comic book. So that's why there's all that. That's that's why there's a lot of weird 
stuff in JLA where other sets just have, you know, punchy guys. Mine has, you know, like Bottle City and, you know, weird, weird stuff, weird, weird ways to play the game. Well, I mean, I mentioned it was one of my favorite sets and I mentioned also that I was playing it for more of a thematic reason that a lot of players were playing it at the time. You know, there was a lot of people who were coming in from competitive magic and stuff like that. And things like, you know, like you mentioned, you know, there was some sort of weirdness, like even one of the weirdest things was that bizarre art and you might be able to see it on the screen at the moment if you're watching on YouTube, but the bizarre art for Plastic Man, that, that particular card started a lifelong love of that character for me. Um, was that something that you came up with, art department? Tell me all about that. I had uh, I had come up with an initial idea of kind of wrapping him around, you know, the frame. Uh, and they they made it they made it look a lot better, of course, because I probably did it in Microsoft Paint. But yeah, I, I thought that would be a, a fun, a fun thing. So clearly I was in it for the fun and not for the smashing face, you know. Well, that might explain why it resonated with me so much, because I was in it for the same reasons. You know, I was building those thematic decks. You know, I wanted my world's finest deck of Bat Family and uh, and Team Superman and all that sort of stuff as well. And now speaking of uh, sort of two different teams, dual affiliation, how is it that such a big mechanic gets handed off onto you? Is that an original idea you had or was that something that you wanted to explore having two different sides uh, representing? Because obviously it makes sense in a Justice League set. You know, you're going to have a Superman who's Justice League and Team Superman, but tell me about how it ended up with you. Yeah, it was a little bit of, you know, because I, I knew the DC characters and I, I I just thought, you know, wow, it's it's sad that we can't have these guys work for more than one team. But then I thought, well, maybe we can. And it was also about the time JLA came out that I was realizing that we hadn't really, we, we weren't giving quite enough to the older sets, right? If you were playing an old uh, Green Lantern set or something like that, you weren't getting, and then that was your favorite deck, you weren't getting a lot. But if we could have some characters that might also have an affiliation from an older team, well, then that's just as good as having uh, you know, a dedicated uh, expansion for you. So that's so interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that I sort of remember when I was playing uh, Verse System, it was, uh, okay, I love, you know, you use the Green Lantern as an example. I love the Green Lantern deck in theory. That was like my first competitive deck. Um, and as you would see other sets come out, you know, you'd have Teen Titans come out and it would have maybe one Green Lantern character. And it was a really good way to sort of fill in this sort of other team sort of affiliation. Because for those who don't know, Verse System was so, rather than a color pie or anything like that, it was so heavily reliant on what team your character sort of come from. So that sort of begs the question, obviously, you know, you're filling, did, were you responsible for filling out this, uh, you know, Justice League roster? Were you the one who got to choose what was happening with, uh, with what characters you'd use in the set? Or was that something dictated by DC? Or did you, uh, like, did you just be like, right, basically I have gamut of every character character who's touched the JLA, which is basically every DC superhero. And you, at the same time, were doing things like Secret Society and Injustice Gang, which is every DC villain. How did that sort of reconcile itself? Yeah, I, I yeah, DC does not get involved in our character choices. Um, you know, we, they have to approve it at the end. But no, I, I, I had the character list. I had one, I had somebody helping me with uh, a little bit of the research on it, for, you know, uh, for some of the locations and all that stuff, uh, especially for art descriptions, you know. Uh, so I had help with uh, art descriptions and things like that. But I basically, yeah, I, I came up with uh, who I wanted in those sets. 
So, and I think that's what led to the dual affiliation is, is realizing, you know, these characters shouldn't just be JLA right here. Well, from as a fan of that sort of set, it felt like it was sort of hitting every era of, I was just sort of becoming a comic book fan in my own right at the age that that set came out. And I sort of felt like you were hitting every era of every single Justice League character. You know, you had modern characters and classic characters and everything like that, all rolling into this sort of singular set, which, like I said, might've been why it was maybe not the most competitive high point, but personally engaging high point for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, for instance, that um, I like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe several of the JLA characters had willpower on them. Yeah, that's for the first time outside of a Green Lantern set. Yeah, I, I wanted to, because Green Lantern had been medium powerful, and I thought, well, you know what? There's no reason why some of these JLA people can't have it, but by doing that, they had to, you know, lose a little bit of little lose a little bit of ability space as well you know so it may have been i was actually doing too much at the time right trying to solve all of the all of the past issues in one set but you know history 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 judges and so does this podcast so <laughs> well no judgment here like i said i love seeing willpower and characters like dr fate and speaking of that you know obviously green lantern wasn't medium powerful set you know, Dr. Light withstanding. Um, I was going to ask uh, what you thought, you know, was there anything in that set that you didn't get in? Was there anything that you were like really hoping that you could cram in? Because as we sort of mentioned, it was a jammed packed set for that particular game. Like there was a lot going on in that set and but the characters were so varied. Do you remember anything in particular that you were like, I this is my pet thing and I just unfortunately couldn't get it in? And on the converse of that, was there something that you may have regretted putting in? Well, like I said, I may may have regretted putting will, you know, giving willpower to several of the characters because it, if they didn't have that, their abilities might have been a little bit stronger. Um, as for things uh, that I wanted to, I I can't really I can't really think of anything. So a lot of the things in that set really made me curious. So there was a lot of sort of uh, sort of one one characters or sort of small army characters that sort of gave me like a token feel. Was that something that you might have explored early on? Yeah. Well, we wanted to, um, you know, bashing around with with big bruisers is all well and good, but you need a little bit of variety. And so those one one army style characters where you could control multiple of them. Uh, was was a way to mix things up. And I think you need to do that. Even, even in a game that's supposed to be about superheroes bashing each other, well, they, you know, Superman has battled dozens of robots at a time. Every superhero has battled dozens of robots and swamp creatures and everything and, and Hellspawn, you know, uh, at the same time. So we want to just give that that feel, just a little, just, just some a, a different way to go with the game. Now, the next set that you sort of work on that I'm familiar with that you sort of were responsible for, you know, as, as sort of like, as they call it, lead designer, was something that was really different for the Verse system. And I really would love to dig into this particular product because it's something that really felt like it was promising something in the future that we never really got to see the future of. And that was the Essential Collection Hellboy, which was essentially bringing in this indie comic book into this big two, as they call them, sort of world. Tell me about how that product come about and how you ended up being the person to lead that. And if that was something that you sort of campaigned for. I did campaign for it, yeah. I I've, I, I have always been a big Hellboy fan. Um, and so I, I really wanted that one. So 
basically it just kind of sometimes just random conversations at comic-con or whatever can just reveal like hey you know mike mcnola is is up is 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 you know will will let us do uh hellboy if we want to and so i said wow i'm a big hellboy fan i would love to do this and they're like well we you know we need it pretty quick so if you want to do it and i said i'll do it i will do it and so I got the assignment on a Friday and by Monday I had like the file pretty close to done. Like it was the, the file that I presented on that Monday was about, about 80% of it made it to print. So there, you know, tweaks here and there, but not, not too much, you know, and that had some weird stuff like having, you know, the, the, the Thule Society and the BPRD but you know having those two decks but when you can combine them now you've got a tournament quality deck you know so that's so interesting so the project came to you as sort of this like sort of boxed companion it was never going to be sort of a booster set or anything like that yeah it was just going to be two decks and and there was no stipulation that the decks had to work together but i knew the thule society's you know dream is to get hellboy on their side and so i thought well let's just have Let's just make this so that it is able to be mixed, a mixed deck, and do really well and be have a have a, a cool new uh, kind of a you know instant win type strategy with the uh, Ragnarok engine. That's so interesting. So that sort of is a precursor to you know like what came later from Magic the Gathering, like the tournament deck, and the fact that you sort of bled this competitive play into the thematics of the get the comic book yourself you know you said you're a fan and it's something that I sort of was starting to get interested at the time you know they had the Hellboy movie it was uh, an absolutely amazing set to see this essentials collection came out and honestly when I saw that I started to get a lot of hope you know like I was a, a big comic book fan and I was into a lot of mainstream big two comic books but I was also into uh, many other indie comics that were happening at the time you know vertigo but notwithstanding which is something that dc didn't really dabble in at the time and a bunch of other image comics and stuff like that you know we'd seen uh spawn and savage dragon and stuff like that come out of them do you know if the if the sort of essentials collection which is sort of the umbrella that that uh hellboy uh set was brought out under do you know if that was going to be a sort of a, a, a lasting line or do you know if there was any more conversations about other sets similar to that one the, the thought was that it could be a, an ongoing line. Um, if you recall, the box set had like these two plastic cases that would go into a very robust sleeve because they wanted it to be like a super premium quality item. Uh, and it was supposed to, and it, and it only cost 30 bucks, right? It was, I, I believe it was like 30, right? Um, or something relatively cheap at the time. <laughs> Uh, the only way they could get it down to that price was to overproduce it by a lot. And that kind of killed the line. So it was, it was, there, there were, you know, it, it probably only sold a third of the copies, which, you know, when you're trying to bring down the costs, you have to increase your quantities. And now you're stuck with all this stuff. Cause at the time that's about when versus system had kind of plateaued and, was on the downslope a little bit. So unfortunately, uh, probably, and and that was my favorite set to, to make actually. I loved making up names for some of these characters that had never had names in the game, like the freaking frog monsters, stuff like that. So um, I love doing that. 
and uh, it wasn't it wasn't that it wasn't that Hellboy was not popular, and it wasn't that the set wasn't popular. There just weren't enough versus players at the time to to justify the print numbers that had happened. So, yeah, the intent was that it could could have happened more, but uh, it may have been a little overzealous on the uh, on the production side. Understandable. Obviously, you know, I I mean, I personally love the set, but I I wish we had seen more in that particular line. Now. You sort of mentioned that was about the time that Verse System plateaued. Do you have any memories from that, sort of like where Verse System was plateauing or even starting to fade away? Do you have any insider information as to what happened to that particular, you know, that particular game as it was sort of, you know, sunsetting as they call it in, in video games? Yeah, what we had kind of discovered is that the average pro player wasn't buying boxes of cards. They were just borrowing decks from their friends who were you know, who were buying boxes. So it was a very, you know, cavalier way to treat the game that you that you were making a lot of money on, right? Um, but I also, I also know that the DC side of it was becoming um, a little more problematic. There's D DC, uh, there were some arts, I, I don't remember the particulars of it. I know like DC, uh, gives ownership of art to the uh, to the artists where Marvel does not something like that you know no one no one based any lawsuits on what I'm saying here I'm trying to remember but there were some issues that were causing that was that was making DC more difficult to do over time and we eventually just had to stop and I was I, I knew the writing on the wall was was happening at that point because when we when we couldn't keep going Marvel DC, Marvel DC in our in our release cycle, I knew that was going to be sounding the death knell to the players. And being a big DC fan, I you know I I was sad. I was sad about that. Yeah. So as the game starts to twilight, it has those couple of I think it has a, I can't quite remember exactly, but there's that Marvel Evolution set, and then before that was a Marvel set. So it sort of starts you know as you said sort of rolling into it, and you know there was this new card design and stuff starting to come in, maybe heralding a new era. But unfortunately, that sort of fell by the wayside. Um, and there's some other history there we could get into, but we don't have time for that today. Um, I was wondering, obviously, this about is about the time you know as as it's sort of pivoting away from sort of verse system, you sort of start to get involved with another license that Upper Deck starts to sort of really dive into, which is a huge gaming property, which is World of Warcraft. Tell me about your memories. I think you work on a couple of different collectible games there. Do you have any broad memories of or, or fun stuff that sort of happened in this sort of World of Warcraft world as you were sort of tasked with that particular property? Yeah, everybody at Upper Deck R&D, which was a pretty big R&D group, it was, it was, it was, at one point, it, it was probably 12 people at one point um, and, and started to taper off a little bit after Versus. So, but, uh, well, Warcraft actually kind of kind of brought it back, actually, I suppose. Um, and I was actually doing a few side games at the time. So I wasn't involved in the early Warcraft trading card game. I was involved in the Warcraft miniatures game from the get-go. Uh, when, um, yeah, when Upper Deck eventually shuttered, World of Warcraft game went to Cryptozoic, and there it was a little bit of smaller team. So I did have the opportunity to make a World of Warcraft trading card game set uh, at that time. 
but yeah, the miniatures game was really great and innovative and it's a lot of fun. People still play it today, but the, you know, the cost of the miniatures was pretty prohibitive with painted minis. So it, uh, it was, it was a tough go from the beginning. Well, it's another one that I think we might've talked about it in one of our two episodes, but when I spoke to Justin, obviously he was a big sort of advocate and sort of one of the sort of like the big forces behind that game getting released. And he told a bunch of stories. So if anybody wants to check out a little bit more about the war, uh, World of Warcraft uh, miniatures game, go check out those episodes with Justin. But just to speak to that, you know, you said that uh, things sort of pivoted and there was a little bit of irony where, you know, you didn't get a chance to work on the World of Warcraft uh, trading card game until it sort of shifted to Cryptozoic. And a lot of your biggest work, um, some people, you know, who are, are really involved in, in trading, uh, sorry, in the hobby gaming space might be aware that, you know, some of your biggest deck building games sort of came out from uh, Cryptozoic in the earliest days of them. So so tell me about, uh, if you can, like what that sort of shift was. Do you remember anything about that sort of change from the hands of at least that property or many others from upper deck into Cryptozoic? You're talking World of Warcraft trading card game? World of Warcraft, yeah, exactly. And why that shift was made. Well, Warcraft had, well, you know, <laughs> the Warcraft trading card game took off like a rocket, mostly it seems due to the scratch off code cards that we had in there. The Spectral Tiger being the chief culprit, you know, that it was worth $500 at one point, if, if not more, but. So just to just to fill in anybody who's not familiar with the game, essentially these were like almost, uh, you know, like scratch it tickets or something like that, where you would reveal a code and you could put it into the World of Warcraft MMO and you'd be given that sort of uh, asset or skin or whatever was represented on that card. Yeah, and I believe the um, the Spectral Tiger was in the second set. And so that set sold out instantly uh, and and caused, you know, and, and made things very popular uh, for, for uh, a year or two. Um, I was working on some side projects at the time, like, um, I can't even remember some of them now. There was a girl's game called What's Your Astro Style? There was Monster El uh, Monster Elegy or whatever it's called. Yeah, it was a, yeah, a little monster battling game. I also did a, a Marvel action figure, you know, the, the, the eight inch, eight inch, whatever, six, eight inch action figure game that you would play across these tiles and whatnot. So I was I was working on a lot of side projects at that point. Uh, so that's why I didn't start out with the with the uh, Warcraft TCG team. But yeah, the transition. So eventually, as people probably know, Upper Deck had some uh, legal issues with uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, and eventually the one of the solutions was let's just let's just. Uh, can the entire entertainment division and just stick with sports. So we had about 60 people all get laid off on the same day. Well, a couple of the, uh, a couple of uh, current and former Upper Deck people decided to form Cryptozoic and immediately contacted Blizzard to keep the uh, Warcraft trading card game going. Cause uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was still going fine. It wasn't stratospheric like it had been early, but it was still going fine. And and uh, but unfortunately, the miniatures game by that point it was it was deemed as too expensive to keep it going. So there you go. But I did, uh, yeah. And even when I first came on, um, I was uh, already looking at doing some 
at doing some other things like deck building games. So that's so interesting. Obviously at that point, Cryptozoic sort of gets launched as not only a gaming company, but also a collectibles company. They were doing trading cards and stuff as well. It really fascinates me that, you know, you sort of mentioned in there, you know, the, the deck building game side of things, because literally as this sort of sun is setting on uh, Upper Deck Entertainment, um, uh, Dominion is coming out, which is obviously the first deck building game. And, and a lot of the hobby industry is getting really inspired by that. And we mentioned the numerous deck building games that you've created in the last sort of decade or more since that sort of came out and stuff like that. And the inspiration, I really would love, not this particular show, but obviously I would love to talk about some of those. There's some fantastic stuff there. But just as we're sort of, you know, fading out of like, trading card games and, and sort of all of this stuff like that you did with collectible games whether it's you know this uh this marvel's uh sort of action figure game uh or even the the warhammer miniature game i do have a couple of questions just about like you know sort of beyond the collectible game space so is there any other stories just to sort of summarize everything we've talked about so far that you wanted to share anything that comes to mind when you think about those sort of heydays of sort of collectible games whether it's way back in those early days of the 90s whether it's working for wizards of the coast store whether it's even you know the verse system in and of itself or any sort of pro circuit stories is there anything that you really think of or reflect on that you really love from that sort of era that we don't see quite the same today i guess the one thing i would say is i was i was surprised by the number of trading card games that came out right after Magic did, that actually did pretty well. You know, uh, Shadow Fist and Wyvern and things like that. Like people were just hungry for anything. So it was definitely an interesting time uh, to be around. Um, obviously none of them hit the heights of Magic, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was crazy just how many, how many different games uh, were, were out there. And half you know and and we're doing we're doing pretty well at the time absolutely i mean you know it was for like magic had forward uh, forged as we mentioned before this whole new genre in tabletop gaming and there was a lot of you know there was a lot of copycats that sort of fell by the wayside but there was a lot of original ideas obviously the one of the most enduring of course was you know the uh alderac games sort of uh legend of the five rings that obviously persevered and even got gobbled up by uh wizards of the coast at one point and obviously all you know tsr and everything like that there's a big history there um and i really do appreciate the sort of innovation that was coming into the space at that time unfortunately you know in the collective consciousness we remember magic we remember pokemon we remember Yu-Gi-Oh. but games like verse system um which does endure somewhat today in a completely different format um isn't remembered for those sort of things today but essentially that's what this show is about now were you know we mentioned the star wars game you pitched before and you obviously had some other projects at upper deck were there other collectible games or especially collectible card games that you sort of were involved in that never sort of the saw the light of day i don't think i don't think collectible card games i was i was kind of at up at upper deck uh for the most part after after i kind of left versus to other people um I was kind of the go-to guy for anything weird that would come around. Like I said, the monster allergy and a Western Astro style and Marvel stuff. So I, I, that's where I got the reputation for being able to juggle several balls in the air at once, you know? Uh, so, and that, that, that did me well moving into Cryptozoic where, where things moved pretty fast and they were able to get a lot of good licenses and needed games pretty quickly. So not only games, but also pitches for games because you it's hard you you when you're when you're going to a licensor like a DC Comics or Walking Dead or 
Archer or stuff like that, you need to show that you have an idea. So I was the guy who could put together a game idea in one day. And then we would send that off to see if the, uh, if the licensor liked the idea or not. So I have probably twice as many pitch ideas as games that I've, I've made. So it's so fascinating to hear about all of that because obviously, you know, you went on to create all these massive IP games, some of which we mentioned in the introduction, many of which we didn't, you know, there's a dozens upon dozens of not just IP based games, but like expansions for those games and expansions upon expansions as well that sort of go on endlessly. Now, while I've got you, I do sort of want to, you are somebody who can really reflect on something really unique and especially the card game space. You know, you worked for, you know, uh, for Upper Deck Entertainment as it was producing Versus System. Um, and especially as somebody who uh, led sort of the Justice League set for DC. And you sort of mentioned before that DC really was hands-off at that time. Did you notice any difference when you sort of pivoted and sort of moved more into the deck building game space with Cryptozoic? Did you notice anything sort of really different there or anything sort of uh, unusual or things that you weren't expecting before with working with that particular license or? Uh, you're talking DC specific? DC specifically, yeah. Well, I do know that at that point, so Upper Deck had done uh, original art. And by the time, you know, Cryptozoic not doesn't have that kind of Yu-Gi-Oh money being a, a startup company, uh, we used comic book art. And so that, that also presented plenty of challenges because uh, believe it or not, they don't have just like a ready database of every piece of art or even every comic book that they're willing to just hand off to you. They, they, go, they have a licensing department that just takes select images and puts them available for use, right? Uh, and so, and we, you know, because for DC, for their history, no one ever needed more than two or three images to make to make underoos or to make a t-shirt, things like that. And then suddenly we come along and say, we need 75 pieces of art and you're only gonna make about $20,000 off of this project, right? From our minimum guarantee or 50,000 or whatever it is. They're used to, they, they like to see numbers in the hundreds of thousands, right? But they're willing to give us a chance because we're a new category, right? They're not gonna, they're not going to give somebody a, an underoos uh, license who's going to give them 50 grand because that license is worth 500 grand, right? But because, you know, this is a new category, they can make a little money. But then suddenly we're requesting tons of images. And when we go onto their database of approved images, not only, you know, not only do you get the same character, you know, uh, in, with just different backgrounds 30 times, or really old art of them, even Superman. Like there might only be 50 pieces of art from of Superman in their entire database. Mm -hmm. uh, that was an interesting challenge. And that's why the, the DC deck building game should have come out in 2011, I believe, or when it, it should have come out a year earlier than it did. But we had so much difficulty uh, getting, uh, getting approvals and art that legendary ended up coming out before DC, 
So we would have beaten Legendary to the punch, but except for except for that year-long delay. So uh, for those who don't know, Legendary is sort of Marvel's deck-building game, which is sort of converse, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But the thing that I'm really interested in there is just to pull out, you know, you mentioned that DC didn't have these ready assets ready to go when you guys were, you know, requesting them as a licensor. And obviously that's something that really has changed and shifted, especially with the expectation of, you know, licensing DC. You know, you've got things like, uh, Metex, which was another trading card game that sort of used a DC's license to sort of mix in with other trading card games. You've got, uh, ironically, Corey Jones's own sort of digital DC card game coming out now as well, you know, that uses these same sort of assets as well. It's fascinating to see that, you know, uh, how much of a, uh, you know, like a flag or a fork in the sand uh, DC deck building game was and sort of obviously made that licensor wake up to, you know, the actual requirements of things moving forward. So that's really fascinating. But I guess my sort of last question is, well as sort of this key part of the interview is going um we've gone way longer than i was expecting but i do want to ask somebody you know like yourself who is uh who has worked in so many different aspects of card games obviously i'm a big card game fan and i'm somebody who loves not only trading card games but i love deck building games in fact i remember uh, trying Dominion and trying get, to get my partner to try Dominion and she wasn't really interested. But when I put DC deck building game on the table, it resonated so much stronger with her and she's actually playing Dominion now. You know, it was a gateway game in so many ways um, for so many people and that was a part of its huge success. And on top of that as well, you've got expandable card games, you know, like things like Card Wars. I see Card Wars back there. Well, Card Wars as well. Yeah, that was a, that was a game. You noticed that back there in the set here. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, we'll be able to see it. Those on uh, on audio won't be able to. But that was another game that you did, again, with Cryptozoic, another license that wasn't traditionally a trading card game. But essentially, if, if trading card games fans can imagine, I just imagine it was a starter deck after a two-player starter deck after two-player starter deck after two-player starter deck after two-player starter deck. And that was a sort of expandable card game. And again, Vampire Rivals is coming now, now which is an expandable card game as well. Tell me. Which of these release models do you prefer working in? What was it that you sort of thought was the, the your favorite way to sort of create a card game in versus uh, trading card games versus uh, expandable card games versus deck building games? You tell me. Yeah, I think that I actually do like the method that uh, the Rivals expandable card game. It's the Vampire the Masquerade Rivals expandable card game. <clears throat> so that's using the World of Darkness with uh, the clans that people know, should know, like the Bruja, Toreador, Malkavian, Venture, that kind of thing. You've probably seen the role-playing game at some point, if you're a gamer. But I do like this system of release because it allows the, uh, it allows the designers like myself to kind of show what our intentions are for the clan with these pre-constructed decks that we create. But then we also give you additional cards in a crypt pack, which is a booster pack essentially in the set to let you customize on your own. Okay. The reason I like it is it, it allows us to get across the point of the new clan and what they're good at a lot faster uh, to the new player. Uh, and having a pre-constructed deck means you can just open it up check for a couple of new rules, you know, oh, what's this new keyword mean? And then just start playing immediately, right? And I think that is very good for getting new people into the game or getting a friend into the game who 
uh, otherwise would be too confused about how to build a deck, right? It's the same thing where if you just buy, you know, five booster packs of magic and hand it to someone who's never played, they're not going to know how to make a deck. But if you hand them a deck and you start playing, it's going to be a lot more accessible. So I really do like uh, this format, the expandable. I also like it where we don't have rarity. So you don't get into all these rarity issues about, oh, oh, this is a, you know, pay to win kind of game. Or, gee, of course you won. Your deck's worth $350, that kind of thing. So after all these years, I think simplifying things, uh, making things more accessible is definitely a good way to go. So, uh, I mean, expandable card games was something that meant so much to me for so many years in the most recent sort of decade. Now, I, I mean, I guess my question is, and like I said, you don't, if you don't have a particular answer for this just yet, by all means, we're happy to see what happens in the future. But uh, one of the biggest criticisms I've seen from that sort of model is that as sets go on, it gets harder and harder to obtain specific cards from specific sets as the game grows. Does, does Vampire uh, Rivals have something to combat that or, or a plan that you might be interested in sort of engaging with uh, that might sort of help mitigate the issue that has been seen through games like Netrunner, Legend of the Five Rings, Lord of the Rings, etc. Well, I would say <laughs> right now, this has nothing to do with the ECG model, but the fact that we released our game during COVID means that we didn't have that giant rush uh, to, to play in your local, friendly local game store. So our, our first expansion and our core set they're still available right now. So yes, you're right. In five years, it might be hard to get that original stuff. But one of the things about uh, the world of darkness is there's there's only a certain number of clans, something like uh, 12 or so. So we will re be revisiting these clans over time. So if you miss out on the Tremere and the Thin Blood, which is our first expansion, you will eventually see them come back around. All right, they're not going to be gone forever. You're going to get that. You're going to get the flavor you're looking for out of those, even if you may have difficulty finding that original set. So hopefully that is a little bit of a uh, of a relief to anyone who's watching this in uh, in 2025. You know, um, that sort of brings me to the end of of sort of my core questions. And like I said, we had going a little bit longer than I expected, but I do have a couple of questions from sort of the community, people who have played your games that you've worked on over the last couple of years that we can sort of pivot to and questions that they have. Now, of course, if you don't have an answer for it, obviously these questions might be a little bit tricky. It has been a number of decades since you might've worked on some of these games. So obviously feel free to uh, mitigate there, but gaming in uh, going into the community questions segment, uh, segment I, I, I wanna call out, like uh, we have somebody, uh, Jason Pearl, for example. Um, so, do you happen to know, obviously, you know, we mentioned why uh, Verse System wrapped up. Obviously, DC became very hard to sort of uh, license art and stuff like that. But Jason Pearl wants to know, do you know if there were any sets specifically in production when Verse System, you know, came to its end? I don't really recall a Versus set that had been worked on that didn't get released uh, at the, in the, the room, in like the last two months before the company folded the entertainment division. We were working on a Marvel themed kind of uh, like one character versus one character almost combat-y game, which I don't know if it came out. I don't think it did. It's possible that it did and I just never knew. 
the upper deck had like a, a, a like a Marvel Cinematic Universe card game that they advertised and then fell off. That might have been it. That's possible. I don't remember if it. I think it. You're right. I think it was based on like the first. Uh, when did the original Iron Man come out? I don't know. Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Okay, that would have been that would have been reasonable because it full because uh, yeah. So it actually probably was based on those. You're right. It was based on the on the cinematic stuff. We we're working on kind of it. So it was like Iron Man versus Wolverine versus whoever else, Captain America. Yeah, Hulk. Um, and that was being worked on by like eight people in the R and D room. And we're all just like, really, this is all, this is all there is, you know? So I, I don't think that came out, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I actually had, I worked on a My Little Kitty or, or Hello Kitty game, a Hello Kitty game that I worked on it and I was just like, okay, here it is, it's done. And I turned it in and they ended up publishing it like in 2012, two years after I had left. I was shocked. I couldn't believe. I was like, wow, they actually published that. That's crazy. So I wouldn't be surprised if that little head to head game, if that cinematic game came out, but I never saw it if it did. I don't think it did. I think I remember the one and, and people watching on YouTube might be able to see like a picture of a couple of the cards. It incorporated not only like Marvel Cinematic Universe that Paramount was doing at the time before it went to Disney, but it also incorporated things like Daredevil, Electra and all these sort of other Marvel sort of movies that X-Men and all that sort of stuff that they'd done beforehand. It's really fascinating. And to hear that My Little Kitty was yet, an, uh, sorry, My Little Kitty, you've got me saying it now. Hello Kitty was one of those brands that sort of uh, was one of the, another brand that you sort of had worked on which is you know one of the most profitable ips in the world apparently now i'm going to jump to the next community question and that is by carl perlas uh he wants to know and you might not know the answer to this but it's okay uh hellboy collection apparently the community um who have uh bought that game and sort of tried to collect it um in that particular box that you mentioned before there was a foil pack that had uh sorry pack that had some foil cards in it there's been a couple of cards they've never been able to find do you know if there was a misprint issue or there was some parallel foils that that never made print do you know anything about that i don't i i do remember not hearing while i was at upper deck of anyone completing the set yeah it was like four or five foils per per pack, maybe two or three, I forget. But yeah, it was it was a weird, it was a weird idea for like the ultimate collector to try to put together an entire set of foil. Uh, we also had, there were also a little art print in there and a hundred of them were signed by Mike Mignola. Um, those were in there too. So yeah, they pulled out all the stops to try to make it a, a real gimmick here. But yeah, I, I do not recall, I can't imagine that there was a print error doing it like we we would have sent because it would have been printed off of virtually the same files they just would have had here's the normal file here's the file with with a foil treatment so they're not going to change the file between the two now the issue can come in the actual packaging because those are done either through a hopper where they just automatically load everything or sometimes by hand in China, where people will literally just go one, two, three in the slot in the in the in the plastic baggie and then throw it in there. That you could have an instance of human error, like one of the uh, one of the one of the little uh, one of the boxes of cards could have just gotten missed. Like I suppose, but I don't. There there was there was nothing that came up in the office that said, "Oopsie, 
we screwed it up. You know, that did not happen. So obviously that says to anybody who was still trying to collect those uh, Hellboy foils, why not? You know, they said that there was only, you know, uh, a third sold. Keep finding them if you can at garage sales, online, anything like that. <laughs> Grab them up because they might still be out there, those five mysterious cards. Your best bet is at uh, Gen Con at the dead card gaming uh, table. Such an iconic institution of Gen Con. Now, my next question comes from uh, Rob Martis, and he wants to know, we sort of talked about it before. Obviously, you were a DC fan when you made uh, Justice League. What sort of research was involved when you guys were sort of crafting a verse system set? Was it something that you guys really delved into? Did it vary from designer to designer? Like, what, where did you sort of embrace the property when you guys were sort of uh, crafting your own verse system sort of universe? I know I did uh, a good amount of research because it was enjoyable to me. Um, I I don't I don't know how other people actually did it. I think they you know probably just looked at various rosters and and just kind of went down the list. Um, I wanted to include some more kind of weirdos in there, uh, and so I may have delved a little deeper. But it's it's all you know everyone everyone kind of had a little bit of a hand with it. The original designer would come up with the characters and then other people, you know, some editors and whatnot might have some influence over like, oh, well, you're forgetting this person. And so, you know, you would add it in. But um, I don't recall anyone else being as much of a, a, a DC uh, geek as myself at the time. My next question, it comes from uh, Craig uh, Groff Folsom. He has a question, a little bit more uh, an ethereal question about sort of like your time with DC deck building game. And we mentioned it before, obviously Marvel Legendary. Now you said before that you had actually designed the DC game a year before it actually released and it actually ended up releasing almost in lockstep with the Marvel sort of legendary deck building game as well. DC came out a little bit after Legendary, sadly. <laughs> so, And how did you feel about that? Did you, was that something that, that gave you cause for concern as somebody who's worked on both licenses and stuff like that? Was that something that you were afraid that might have those two games judged against one another? How did that make you feel as a designer there? Well, yeah, I was sad that we did not make it to market first um, because at least in the early days, Legendary did have a, uh, a bit of an advantage. They were, they were, they were, or their sales were better because, you know, there were certainly some, especially like bookstores and whatnot, they didn't necessarily want to carry two different games of the same genre. Uh, so they went with Legendary because it came out first, but our game was on the shelf, ready to publish for almost a year before we were able to finally get all the approvals and everything cleared. So that, that was disappointing, uh, but these things, these things happen. You got to roll with it. So I think DC has made up for it by having a, uh, a richer uh, legacy and a very uh, greater variety of product too. Not just because Legendary has gone on to do different licenses, uh, which is fine. And so DC has kind of kept uh, kept the, the focus on DC, and uh, I think is a uh, is a is a rich is a rich history now. It definitely is not only for the DC universe, but for the own game itself. You know, as we mentioned in the intro, it's at its 10th anniversary and it just had a Kickstarter, I believe, that sort of brought out, I don't know if you're still on it, but I just, uh, that brought out entirely new sort of game sort of elements to it and it's continuing to bring out products. So it seems like an enduring line that's going to keep going for Cryptozoic in that time. I actually will mention that um, the, I, I don't have anything to do with the Kickstarter or anything, but and the Kickstarter is mostly for the, the new damaging method of play, which is how we 
which is uh, what we did with the Epic Spell Wars deck building game. You're you're doing damage to your opponent. I don't even I don't know the full extent of how much the game is about de dealing damage, but it's there. But one of the stretch goals is a uh, DC bombshells uh, crossover pack. I actually designed that before before I left, but it kind of got shelved for a little bit for whatever reason. Yeah, I feel like it was one of those things that was actually announced maybe a couple of years ago and then ended up and seeing it now because I remember that art from maybe I think 2018, maybe even before. Yeah, you're right. It was actually announced. Yeah, so I made that and I'm sure they've modified it a little bit, but they're still using probably 90% of what I did. That's, uh, that's amazing. So uh, I don't know if the Kickstarter will still be going when you guys see this episode, but if it is, jump on and uh, and, and back it. Obviously, the stretch goal has been hit, and you can obviously uh, check out the DC uh, Deck Building Games Bombshells expansion, which was, uh, which was designed by yours truly. Now, I do want to move into a couple of last questions of the community, and then we're going to move into the cracking questions and sort of wrap it up. So a uh, real simple question from Sam L. As somebody who has worked on... I guess literally multiple dozens worth of licenses. What do you feel like is the most important thing about capturing a license when representing it in a game? Do you have any advice for anybody who might uh, be facing the same challenges that you've chased over the last two decades? Yeah, I, I've I've been asked this before, so I, I have a pretty good answer. Um, yeah. So the main thing is you want to, if you don't already know the license. The property you're working with, you need to you need to understand it in and out. Okay, so you got to watch all the episodes, figure out the mind of the player that you're that you know the mind not even of the player the mind of the people who like that property. Okay, uh, and then for me and other people might disagree, but I want to give them an experience that is going to satisfy the itch that they have for their favorite show, you know? So if it's like a Rick and Morty game, right? Well, I wanna like have bizarro things happening and games based on a single episode where they can relive that episode and have it feel kind of like, you know, going, uh, have a feel of that episode like my Anatomy Park game, right? It's a theme park building game. Most theme park building games, everyone's building their own park, but this one, you're all building it together inside of a human body, right? Um, another thing I'll say is that sometimes we're making a game that's based on a game, right? So for instance, like World of Warcraft, um, I did a, uh, I actually designed a Diablo game at one point, but it did not, it did not ever get published, uh, but we play tested it and everything. Well, when I make a game based on a game, I don't like to have the game do the same thing as the video game in, in this case, right? Because if you want that video game type of play, why not play the video game where you're gonna get better graphics, better sound, better everything, better sound effect, you know, better sound effects, better everything, and only, you know, and you only have to play for 20 minutes to be satisfied. Whereas a Diablo deck building game is going to take an hour, isn't visually flashy, things like that, you know. So if you're just doing dungeon delving for a Diablo game, why not just play the actual video game, right? So I want to give you something different to go in a different direction than what, what you're used to. So I hope that answers the question a little bit. 
It certainly does, but it also raises the question, what did your Diablo game do, if we don't want to dive too deep into it? It was a, it was a deck building game based on kind of the crafting uh, and whatnot, and uh, gemming, gemming up your, uh, your, your items as well. As a Diablo fan, I'm very, very, very sad I never got to see that, and as a deck building game fan as well. That was that was a long time ago. That was that was a long time ago. So I don't even I, I sometimes keep copies of my of my card files of old stuff that has never been published, but I did not manage to keep keep that one around, sadly. So what I'll do is I'll move to my last community question, which is a super simple one. Um and obviously a lot of uh old collectible card game players watch this show and alexi smith is obviously somebody they've they're somebody who obviously played the original verse system game um tell us what influences did uh sorry not verse system pardon me uh v test game tell me what uh the original vampire the eternal struggle uh collectible card game was there any influences that that game had on your new vampire rivals game or anything that you could see that would maybe even cross over sort of between those two fan bases there are certainly people who have played both now, you know, whether they're a lap, you know, there are people who still play Vitas, uh, Vampire of the Eternal Struggle, formerly Jihad. I was actually a play tester for Jihad before I even got to, got hired at Wizards of the Coast. Um, so for actual, uh, so having played and been, been a part of the original Jihad, which is now Vitas, um, I did know that I wanted rivals to be a little more accessible because jihad from the beginning has always been uh, a little a little esoteric its rules are convoluted its cards will sometimes have a half of the card is taken up by a massive block of text you know you shouldn't have 40 words on a trading card you know is, is kind of my policy uh, for, for rivals, we top out at about 15, and that's a rarity. Most cards are like 10 words tops, you know? Uh, so I, I just wanted it to be um, a shorter game. Uh, and people who play uh, Vitas um, know that those games can take two hours. They're also bigger, sometimes bigger games. Five or six players are often, uh, I think, maybe five is the max, I forget. But um they're, they take a long time. There's only one way to win, and that is uh, removing people's blood. So it still uses sort of blood counters and stuff like that, like the original uh, uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle? The, that is the biggest legacy of, uh, of Rivals, that it, we use a blood pool. Uh, we start with 20. Uh, I believe that Vitas is 30, but anyway, whatever. But we have multiple ways to win, which opens up just a lot more strategy to it. You're not so singularly focused on one strategy every single time you play, which is bleeding an opponent, right? So that opens it up and it, it just gives you a, a more robust experience because the original game is is kind of suffers from the being having come out in, I think, 95, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So it's a little little on the older side and maybe it was a little convoluted for the, for its time. Exactly. Well, you mentioned before how tricky it was to sort of hold uh, vampire uh, tournaments at the at the game center and stuff like that because of the fact that it requires so many people. It was such a long running game. It wasn't over in 20 minutes like Magic was. It's over in more than an hour for sure. Yeah. Also, the game didn't end when someone got knocked out. 
And I thought that that was that was a, that was something I wanted to correct with rivals. When when someone gets knocked out at rivals, that's that's going to end the game. Awesome, awesome. So we have one last thing to do before the episode wraps up, and that is a Kraken question. Release the Kraken. So essentially, easily, all you have to do is choose one of these three colored booster packs. Tell me which one it is, and we'll go out on these four random questions. What color would you like? I don't know. I think red and blue have sometimes been my favorite colors, so I don't want them to betray me, so I better choose yellow. All right. Well, we have got yellow in this uh, Kraken Questions booster pack. So on the show today, what we're going to have is we're going to have three questions that are random, silly questions, common questions, and one rare game designer question. Who wrote these? The uh, the advanced team that I have behind this podcast, the uh, the writers and the the production team, and you know the uh, the the producers and everything like that. I met your I met your team of lawyers and your video production crew before this cast, so I was impressed that you have that many people in suits around. Did you sign the release? I signed the release and the blood sample is on the, is being delivered by Courier. Excellent. So that's great. So you can appear on the show and I will get profits from the next Vampire Rivals release. Great. So let's move on to the cracking questions. So cracking question, common question number one. Oh, this is an interesting and relevant one. What is your favorite collectible card game you weren't professionally involved with? The ones that I played the most back in the day, um were original Netrunner and Doomtown. So yeah, original Doomtown as well. So I would I would probably I mean I I played some Star Wars, I played some Lord of the Rings, I did, but I would say those were my two big ones. I played some Battletech as well. Um Battletech is actually a good game, but I would say that I liked Doomtown the most out of those uh, yeah, previously, just because it was unique. It was so unique. For those who don't know, Doomtown used literally poker hands to decide conflicts and stuff like that. And each card would sort of represent a poker deck. It was one of the best. And I recommend it is literally, I think maybe my favorite CCG mechanic ever. Yeah, it was just entirely unique. You know, um, Netrunner, I also really do like, but it, uh, especially way back when it, it, it it had the flaw of degenerating pretty quickly, you know, running against the corporation was uh, usually smashing your face into a wall repeatedly. So once, once you, once you get into real, real tournament level deck building, so it kind of fell apart a little bit, but, and of course, Doomtown also had the issue of people could just play decks that were, you know, all, almost all jacks, you know, so that they could, so that they could always make a four of a kind jack or five of a kind or what I don't even remember if five of a kind was legal, but whatever. Uh, yeah, that degenerated a little bit, but you could play with uh, with uh, with bicycle deck rules where you had to have a fifty-two card deck. One of each card was pretty. Well, that that's that was the better way to go. So it was such a cool era, and I feel like those particular games, especially Netrunner, especially Doomtown that you mentioned, were some of the most innovative in the collectible game space and i think that their legacy obviously both of them you know endured as expandable card games which you discussed before um i'm so glad that there was a jump to a next generation i i, I hope that that uh they live on in some fashion or one another um okay so common question number two you have to eliminate one of these franchises from existence it doesn't affect anything else but it's either star trek Star Wars or Star Blazers? 
Star Blazers was a favorite of mine as a kid growing up. I would wake up so I could watch Star Blazers at 7.30 in the morning all summer. And uh, the funny thing is, you know, the, the summer season would have been like uh, 50 episodes, but Star Blazers was only 45 episodes. So they would run 45 episodes and then run the first five again. <laughs> that was it. And then they're done for the summer. But anyway, so I'm not, I'm not getting rid of that because that's old school. Uh, funny, I made a Star Trek game at Upper Deck that we pitched to CBS, but we even play tested it. Never, never happened. Did not happen. Um, Star Wars, I think. Um, this sounds like a real Sophie's Choice for you. You sound like you've got a deep connection to each one of them. Yeah, and I came up with a Star Star Wars game as well. I never came up with a Star Blazers game, but it's it's. I would have to get rid of Star Trek just because. Star Wars now, I think, has a little more with the Mandalorian and all that. It's 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 pretty cool now. They've they've gone back to the Western style a little bit, which I appreciate. While Star Trek has these kind of you know clean uniform, clean ship. It just doesn't. I know Gene Roddenberry was looking you know for a, an idealized future, but it just seems a little it's a little on the corny side still for me. So. Even though I, I definitely am a Star Trek fan, I'm more of a Star Wars fan, so I'd have to say, got to get rid of Star Trek. Well, I'm sorry to give you that, uh, you know, that pulling teeth question, but these questions are randomized, and that utopia that Star Trek promises is obviously always a difficult one to maintain, especially in our seemingly chaotic world nowadays. So, last common question. If you were magically proficient at an Olympic sport, which Olympic sport would it be? I'd probably... I'd, I'd probably want to go with like the hundred yard dash just because it's, it's, it's fast and then it's over with, you know? Um, also, I think it's also one of the better money sports outside of the Olympics. So you get invited to these, uh, you know, international tournaments and you're making, you're, 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 you're getting an appearance fee. There's, there's not too many appearance fees for pole vaulters. That's correct. And as well, you know, not to, you know, not to distract from your very, very, very uh, analytical review of that particular thing, but as well, you know, a hundred yard dash is so much more applicable in real life, you know, oh, I've got to catch this bus, hundred yard dash. Oh, there's a, there's some guy who doesn't like my attitude, hundred yard dash would always come in handy. Absolutely. So last rare game design question is this one. And you actually have worked in many. So I'd be very interested to hear this, this particular answer. Which gaming genre, which you haven't worked in, would you be interested in working in the most? And what appeals to you about it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say, go, I'm going to have to go a little left field here. And I would, I would love to work on like a... Uh, on a uh, World War II computer war game, actually. So totally out of my out of my comfort zone. I'm not a programmer, but I certainly could come up with the design ideas. Um, you know, I've I computer war gaming is uh, is something I've done, and I'm not not talking about first person shooters. I'm talking about more strategic stuff, like real time strategy, like a command and conquer type thing. No, uh, no, I'm talking more more slightly more hardcore, like uh, close combat. People would have that's not really hardcore, but it's it's more hardcore than a it's yeah not games that are not uh, Twitch fests. I want more strategy. 
uh, more um, moving, moving little guys, you know, moving squads across a map into bunkers to try to, you know, just try to throw grenades at the enemy kind of thing, you know. Um, so I would love to do a game. Close Combat is a game that's played on like a 500 meter by 500 meter map where you move your squads around and, you know, try to find the enemy and shoot them. I would love to do that for the entire like Battle of the Bulge. Why play with just 500 meter by 500 meter when you can play with, uh, you know, 500 mile by 500 mile, right? Well, commuters can handle that nowadays, right? I would, I would love to think so. Or even I've played a little, I, I, right now I am actually playing a sort of a first person shooter called Hell Let Loose. It's a uh, kind of like a Battlefield 42, all that, but it's slightly more realistic, I guess you would say. Um, but, you know, that's like a 50 on 50. I, I long for the day when it's uh, 5,000 versus 5,000. So, and a persistent and a persistent world as well, right? I want to play World War II where you're playing, you know, it's, it's May 6, 1943, Right. That's that's what I want to see. That's when we're recording this, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, you signed off in that time travel document from my lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I have I have these crazy ideas for what I would do if I was a billionaire. I would make a I would make a video game that was just the war in real time. So we sort of mentioned before, you know, you sort of were inspired by a, another war game you were playing years ago to sort of incorporate mechanics into Verse system. It's amazing to hear that all come full circle. And hopefully one day you'll get to do that in another game moving forward. But at the moment you're working on, we can see it behind you. There's a bridge in Prague that sort of represents some of the settings from uh, Vampire, the Rivals, the Masquerade, the Rivals game. Tell us about where that is, like what's coming out, what's going on with the future and what else you've got in the pipeline with all of that. Yeah, this is the uh, the Charles Bridge in Prague. Um, that's one of the innovations that uh, Rivals has over probably any any expandable, collectible, tradable card game. Is there's a a city deck of random uh, citizens, vagrants, and event and uh, Second Inquisition guys that are coming after guys that like to hunt vampires, like government government agencies, secret government agencies. It's a randomized deck that is placed, you know, that, that comes out one card per turn to allow there to be things to interact with, right? Because vampires don't exist in a bubble. They need to go and feed on their prey at night. So we actually give them people to people to feed on, right? Uh, that is something I wanted to incorporate that, 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 that Vitesse did not have. So actual actual humans that you can snack on. Yeah, so that, so the next expansion actually is, uh, is called the Heart of Europe, takes place in Prague. That'll be coming out in, uh, in a month, in about probably two months, yeah. Sometime in July, I suspect. Um, yeah, and I'm also working on uh, Hasbro. You've heard of my Hasbro games? Of course. Rivals is by Renegade Games, and uh, we also have the Hasbro license, so we're working on, we, we've already published a Transformers deck building game, Power Rangers deck building game, G.I. Joe deck building game. Soon, there'll be a My Little Pony deck building game. 
So, which I had a small part in. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I can't wait. All of those uh, deck building games properties have had a, a trading card game and I, I played all of them personally. So I can't wait to dive in and see what the deck building world of Equestria holds for the My Little Pony gang. So that's about it for this episode. Obviously all the links to those particular properties will be uh, in the description as well of either the YouTube video or on the podcast feed if you guys are listening to this. Um, and check out those games. Vampire Rivals sounds amazing. I played uh, a little bit of VTS myself and I and I, I really do want to jump into this. So it sounds fantastic to get going. So thank you so much for spending so much time chatting with me about your amazing career, Matt. I really appreciate all the stories you've shared today some unique stuff especially you know going all the way back to literally as i dubbed it before sub day zero for magic the gathering i can't believe that your career has taken you this far who would have known when you were working at that convention that that's what happened thank you again goodbye from me for the show goodbye from you thanks a lot bye bye thank you so much until next time thank you guys for joining me again remember check the links in the description and until next time keep shuffling And there you have it, our episode with Matt Hira. Thank you so much to Matt for joining us for this episode and sharing those amazing stories. And of course, thank you guys for joining us for this whole episode. Now, it's not often you get to talk to somebody who has been playing collectible card games since before the release of even Magic the Gathering, but it was very special to hear some of those stories that Matt was able to tell us today. Now, as well, if you want to check out any of Matt's current games, I'll link a couple of them in the description. Things like Vampire the Masquerade Rivals, which is just getting going in the expandable card format, or even the DC deck builder game that he designed all those years ago celebrating its 10th anniversary this year i will link that in the description as well and you can jump on and check those out as well now if you want to find me you can contact me via social media that is facebook.com slash ccg history or where i'm more often twitter.com slash ccg history or at ccg history on either of those platforms now as well if you want to send me a direct message on those our DMs are open. You can give me feedback on this episode, your thoughts, even share your own CCG stories or TCG stories. Now, as well, if you want to send me something a little bit more long form, you can have a look in the description of this episode because you'll find our email address, which is the booster pack at CCG history. And as well down there in that same description, you might be able to find our listener survey linked. And if you do that survey, it gives me an idea of, you know, when you started playing collectible games, what sort of games you want to hear about, what you want to see on the show so we can continue bringing episodes that are going to interest you and engage you in this particular podcast. And I love doing that. So feel free, check those out and please let me know what you think. Any feedback is appreciated as well. The other thing I'd really appreciate is if you could subscribe if you like these kind of conversations. So whether that's on the podcatcher that you're using or on YouTube, a subscription goes a long way to helping bring more content, more interviews, more standalone episodes, stuff like that, so that I can continue creating this show and sort of sharing these card game stories that are not heard anywhere else. It's been absolutely fantastic ride, and I hope we can keep it going for years to come. Now, that's about it from me. Last thing I will mention, if you're interested in even building a Verse system collection or a collection for some of the other dead collectible card games we talked about on this episode, whether it's Doomtown or something like that, check the links in the description because we do have a sponsor that is Category 1 Games. They are a classic collectible card game reseller. They've got a whole bunch of classic collectible card games, which is good if you're just 
starting to build a deck and they do try to keep their prices competitive to the market at the time as well. And they have great customer service. So you can always reach out to them and ask them if you have a deck list or something like that you're putting together, reach out to them, contact them. You can find them again. They'll be linked in the description. That's about it for me for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to bring you another episode of the Booster Pack or even the Rare Slot. That's our topic-driven conversations as well in the very near future. So until then, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Keep shuffling.